turn to Esther chapter 7, Esther chapter 7. For those of you that are visiting, as Brad mentioned, my name is Pastor Dennis, and um, it is an honor and a privilege today uh, to open up God's Word and share it with you. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day and telling them how uh, the Word of God is life-giving. Do you know what that means? Um, you know, when, something, when somebody says something is life-giving, I, if you're like me, I have asthma. And when I can't breathe, uh, one of the things I reach for is my inhaler. And when I take two puffs of that inhaler, you know what happens? I can breathe again. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, it, it's amazing. It's almost like I, I've been given a new lease on life. When that rush of the inhaler goes into my lungs, I can breathe. I, I just look at the world differently. And it's interesting, when you can't breathe properly, your mind, you know, and you get that inhaler, it's just like you get mental clarity. You can take full breaths. You feel invigorated, right? The same thing happens or is supposed to happen with God's word. God's word is supposed to breathe life into you. When you read it, it's supposed, when, when coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's supposed to breathe new life into you. You're supposed to see the world differently. You're supposed to see yourself differently. The word of God is designed to give you life. And it's my prayer often for all of you that when you hear the word of God, when you read it privately and when you come here and you hear it, it does produce life. It gives you life. It helps you to think differently and look at the world differently and walk differently. And so uh, every morning um, that I pray, and especially on Sundays, I pray that the word of God that comes from the pulpit, regardless of who's preaching, may convey life to you because it's life-giving. And that's why I count it a privilege to stand up here and communicate God's word for you. All right, Esther chapter 7, we've been going through the providence of God in the book of Esther. And, um, and I, I told you that uh, during the Christmas season, I'm going to highlight specific Christmas themes that I think are important um, for us to learn today. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Now, let's read Esther chapter 7. We're actually going to begin at 614, because mo in most of your Bibles, it probably has 614 lumped in with chapter 7. So I'm going to begin there and then read all the way down to the end of the chapter. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O God, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. 
But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Arbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance uh, on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had, has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Law flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, we thank you for this time that we have. Lord, already our souls have been blessed by the reading of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word. May now your... Um, may now we be blessed by the proclamation of the word and the teaching of the word. Lord, this is your word and these are your people. I pray that you might unite them together, that they might be changed inwardly and it might impact their actions externally. And now, Father, what we ask not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Well, last week we studied <coughs> the theme of divine reversals. And we looked at the fact that Haman, who was up high, was brought down low. And then, of course, uh, Mordecai, who was low, was exalted. And today we're going to look at the subject of divine justice and sin. Now, let me say this at the very beginning. Whenever we talk about divine justice and sin, all of us get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable because, unfortunately, we live in a society today in which all we really focus on is um, the love of God. We're comfortable with talking about the love of God and the grace of God. And by the way, we should feel comfortable about that. God is a loving God, and God is a gracious God. But the Bible actually tells us something in addition to that, that God is the God of divine justice, that God has to punish sin. And one of the things about this chapter that we see is God actually doing that, and that makes us somewhat uncomfortable. But let me say this. There's no way that we could understand Christmas without understanding the divine justice of God and his punishment of sin. You say, Pastor, what do we mean by that? Remember when the angel came to Joseph and he said, you should call him Jesus because he shall save his people from what? His sins. Their sins, our sins. Why did Christ come to earth? To save us from our sins. Now let me say this, if sin wasn't bad, why did Christ come to die for it? If sin didn't threaten to destroy us, what's the purpose of Christ's death on the cross? Christ didn't just come to be a moral example for us. That's not what the Bible tells us. 
The Bible tells us that he came to deal with sin. In fact, his very name, Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, means the Lord is our salvation. He's the one that actually saves. And that's the purpose of Christ coming to earth, and that shapes everything that we see in the gospel. Yes, Christ healed. Yes, Christ forgave sins. Absolutely. But the whole purpose of Christ's ministry on earth was to come and die for the sins of mankind, to deal with the problem of sin. And that's why this passage that we just read is so important, because it shows us that when Christ came to earth, he dealt with three things. He dealt with the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin. I want to look at these three because these three are in the passage. First of all, he came to deal with the power of sin, verse 1 through verse 6. Now, what do I mean by he came to deal with the power of sin? There is sin in the world today, and sin exerts a power on each and every one of us. It really does. Sin causes chaos and death in the world. And unless Christ came to deal with that, chaos and death will reign in the world. Look at this passage. If you look particularly at verse number three, it tells us the destructiveness of sin. Uh, Esther isn't throwing this party uh, that we see here, this, this event, this feast. She isn't throwing this uh, in order to be happy or just for fun and enjoyment. Esther is here to beg for the life of her and her people. Notice again verse three, 3. Esther said this. The queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Why is Esther begging for the, her life and the life of her people? Because of Haman. Haman is exerting the power of his sin on God's people. Look at verse number 6 and see what Esther calls him. Esther calls him a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. The Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. He's exposed. He's evil. In fact, if you read through this passage and if you read through the whole narrative, Haman is the personification of sin. And his sin is absolutely destructive. Verse number 4, um, Esther says that his, her people have been sold and have been given over, and they are going to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. That's what Haman is threatening to do. Not only that, notice that Haman's power is threatening the powerless in verse number 13. Uh, sorry, not verse number 13, but at the end where she said that uh, he has been sold, he sold his people into slavery, even the young and the old. It, in fact, it's back in, in uh, chapter 3, where it mentions that, that Haman um, sold all of the people uh, of Israel to be killed and to be annihilated and to be destroyed. That's the power that sin exerts in the world. And that's what Esther is up to. Now, all of us inside you today know the power of sin on our lives. Each and every one of us inside you today have felt the hurt, the pain, the anger of sin. We've all been crushed by the sin of others. Every one of us inside here today has felt the power of evil on our lives. There's some of you that have been abused. There's some of you that have been taken advantage of. There's some of you that have been wronged. 
you know the hurt feelings that you have. Some of you are probably in counseling, no doubt, because of the power of sin on, on you personally, but also the power of sin in the world. The power of sin that's been unleashed in the world. We see this in Ukraine. We see this uh, by sex trafficking. All the laws that promote abortion. Companies defrauding people out of their hard-earned money. All of us inside here today are suffering underneath the power of sin. And the question is, does God do anything about that? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely he does. Because the power of sin must be confronted by the power of God. That's what Amos says in Amos chapter 5 and verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We have a God that confronts sin. Now, how does God confront sin in the world? Let me say this. There's a right way to confront sin and a wrong way to confront sin. Our society confronts sin often in the wrong way. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Our society confronts um, sin and evil through anger, fear, manipulation, lies, and bravado. I was reading a Christian writer, and this is important. This is a Christian writer, and he was talking about politics. And he said this, Christians need to get tough. Christians need to hit back at those that are hitting at us. Christians need to flex our muscles and fight fire with fire. That's how Christians need to deal with the evil in this world. In essence, what was this Christian writer telling us to do? This Christian writer was telling us that in order to fight the Hamans of the world, we have to become like Haman. This Christian writer was saying in order for us to truly fight evil in the world, we need to become evil. In order for us to deal with the power of evil in the world, we have to get even more powerful, even more evil. That's not what scripture tells us to do. Scripture says that the way we deal with evil in the world, uh, the power of evil in the world, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when you and I try to fight the evil in this world by becoming just like the evil, then we end up not manifesting the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Esther actually confronted evil. Esther did, it wasn't like Esther did nothing. It wasn't like Esther just rolled over and said, hey, that's the way it has to be. The exact opposite. Scripture told, tells us that Esther fasted and prayed. Scripture tells us that extra, ex, Esther exercised wisdom. Scripture tells us that Esther boldly went in and identified Haman as the evil. That's how we attack evil in the world, through wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit, not by adopting the evil practices of this world. And let me say this as well. We live in a world today in which the, the manifestation of evil is real. We see it every day. We, exposed it, we are exposed to it every day. And the only way that we can overcome evil, the Bible tells us, is by radical good. It's by actually believing in faith and grace and mercy. It's by actually believing God when he says, love your enemies and do good to them. That takes faith. That takes faith. It doesn't take faith to hit back when you're hit. 
It doesn't take faith for us if we're being wronged to say, you know what, we're still going to persevere in the name of the Lord. Beloved, let me implore you that in the fight against evil, the power of evil, don't seek to use the tools of Haman. Seek to use the tools of Esther as she relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the power of sin. We see it in our world. It's impacting us. Next, notice the penalty of sin. Now, the penalty of sin is clear in this passage. Notice in verse number seven, it said the king rose in his wrath. What does that mean? It means finally now the wrath of the king has fallen on Haman. The wrath of the king has fallen on Haman. This is an indication that sin is about to be addressed. Now, for most of us in here, we're fearful of the wrath of God. I remember um, several years ago, Keith and Kristen Getty's favorite, uh, famous song, In Christ Alone, there was a big push to take the phrase, the wrath of God has been satisfied out of it. Some of you might have remembered that. Now, why is it that people wanted to take that phrase, the wrath of God, um, the wrath of God uh, was satisfied out of that phrase? Because most people don't understand the wrath of God. Here's what I mean by that. Most of us, when we look at the wrath of God, when we think about the wrath of God, we think of it in wholly negative ter terms. We think of the Old Testament God who's destroying everyone. That's not a God of love. We want to run away from the wrath of God. But hear me today, the wrath of God is the most blessed doctrine in Scripture. Because when the wrath of God is applied, it's always applied on evil, and it's always applied to make things right. No one, when you read this text, was sorry for Haman. No one. No one who's been reading along with us said, man, I wish that didn't happen to Haman. Of course not. If you read the book of Esther, you're probably cheering once Haman is hung. Because we understand that evil has to be punished. There's a certain reality to the fact that people like Haman, who have given themselves completely over to sin, has to, has to be punished for their sin. None of us inside here today wept or shed a tear for Haman. Now, is it the case that we're sorry? We don't glory in the destruction of the wicked. Absolutely not, the Bible says. But we all understand that Haman needed to be punished, and the wrath of God is designed for that. That's why in Romans 13.3, Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good, uh, to good conduct, but to bad. That's what we see in this passage, the wrath of the king being poured out on Haman, because Haman was deserving of it. Now, let me point out one thing to you. If you've been reading through the book of Esther, you'll notice that every time the wrath of the king happened, it was always for bad purposes, evil purposes. And he, got, he gets angry at Vashti, and what happens? He deposes Vashti as queen. But in this passage, for the first time, his wrath is being used for what the wrath of God is designed for. And that's to punish sin. Because every time the wrath of God is applied in the world, it's designed to make things good, to make things right. Now, I want us to see quickly how Haman finally died. If you drop down, um, after the king leaves in his wrath, Haman begins to plead and beg for his life. Now, pause here. There are some people who say, well, Pastor Dennis, 
Haman is pleading for his life. He's begging for his life. Why doesn't God forgive him? Here's why God does, doesn't forgive Haman in this case. Haman begging for his life is not a sign of repentance. Haman begging for his life is a sign of him just saying he's sorry. And there's a big difference between saying you're sorry and repenting. When you say you're sorry, all you're trying to do is mitigate the consequences of your actions. In other words, if I could say it differently, all you're trying to do is get out of punishment. You know, when I catch my kids doing something, and I said, all right, <laughs> justice is about to roll down like waters. And, you know, they said, oh, Dad, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. And I was like, oh, you know, are you really repentant, though? Well, what are they doing in that, in that moment? What are we doing in that moment? When we say we're sorry for things that we've done, what are we doing? We're trying to mitigate the impact of our sin. We don't want the consequences. Beloved, that's radically different from repentance. Repentance isn't so much concerned about the consequences of sin. Repentance is concerned about changing our hearts and minds. And we all need to be careful because when we go before God and we say, God, I'm sorry, right? What are we actually doing? The Bible never says we should say we're sorry. The Bible calls us to repentance. And repentance is a whole different matter. Repentance occurs when we realize that our sin has wronged a holy God. And that because of that, we need a complete heart and mind change in order to align, align our hearts and minds toward God. We're not just interested in escaping the consequences of sin. And here's the, here's the glorious reality. When we repent, we not only change our heart and mind, but we also, by God's grace, escape the consequences, the ultimate consequences of our sin. And that's why in this passage, when Haman begins to beg for his life, he is not shown grace because he's not interested in repentance. He's only interested in saying, I'm sorry. Now, after Haman begins to beg for his life, the king comes back into the palace, verse number 8, and he sees Haman falling on the couch with Esther. And, and this was a big no-no. You don't do this. You don't, you don't touch the king's women, his queen. And so immediately the king uh, executes judgment on him. And I, I could just see Harbona. You know, he's, he's back, kind of looking like, how is this going to go? And then right as the king about, about to like deal with Haman, he steps out and he says, oh king, <laughs> don't you know that, that the gallows that was prepared for Haman, uh, prepared for Mordecai, that Haman appear, uh, prepared for Mordecai, is in Haman's own house, hang him on that. Right? Now this shows us, by the way, that Haman must have been particularly hated. You know? That somebody is like, oh, I got the perfect death for him. <laughs> don't, don't send one of your men just to run him through with a, with a sword. No, no, no. We, we have a better death prepared for him. Now, now pause for a moment because this is so important. Every Israelite that reads this text knows that this death isn't an ordinary death. Now, when you and I think of gallows, by the way, we think of, a, you know, 
that, that sort of L-shaped, reverse L-shaped construction with a rope at the end of it and people hang on it, right? That's what we think about when we think about gallows. That's not what be, what's being spoken of here. The word for gallows here is the Hebrew word for tree. And basically what it was, was they would cut a, a piece of tree, they'd cut a point into it and stick it, uh, make it real sharp, and then they would impale someone with that and string them up. And every Jew that read this text understood that Haman's death in this way meant that he was cursed. Listen to Deuteronomy 21, 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. This just wasn't any death. This was the ultimate death for Haman. A fitting punishment for his crime. And because of that, every Christian in here should be reminded that while Haman hung on a tree for his sins, Jesus Christ hung on a tree for ours. The reality of this passage is that the cross is the ultimate way in which God himself addresses the penalty of sin. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Listen to me. We read this passage. And for some of us, we have a, you know, our sensibilities are offended because how can God allow Haman to die in this way? But I assure you, brothers and sisters, this is mitigated wrath. No one that dies on earth has the full wrath of God poured out on them. No one on earth experiences judgment anywhere near what Christ experienced. The word of God tells us that the full wrath, the full cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ had the full measure of our sin poured out on him on the cross. That's the power behind this text. That yes, we look at this text and we see Haman experiencing the full wrath justified. But we are reminded at the same time that we had a Savior who didn't sin. Who didn't deserve that kind of death. And yet he hung on a tree for you and I. That changes our hearts and minds radically. Because it reminds us that the penalty of sin was fully paid for. And let me say one more thing. A scholar um, put it this way, and I loved how he said it. He said, on the cross, God isn't concerned with destroying an enemy, but destroying enmity. And there's a huge difference here. You notice in the Bible, the Bible says that God is angry at the wicked daily. That is a very interesting text, because notice no one's name is mentioned. It didn't say, well, God is angry at David daily, or God is angry at Mark daily. No, it said God is angry at the wicked daily, because what does wickedness cause? Wickedness causes enmity with God. It creates a separation between God, and ultimately what Christ did on the cross 
address enmity. That now you and I have the ability to go before the Lord and be received by him because of Christ's sacrifice. And I love that reality, that there is no more enmity between us and God if we but repent and ask for forgiveness. Notice, finally, the presence of sin. Christ delivers us from the presence of sin. In, in verse number 10, it says, so, Haman hanged, uh, so they hanged Haman on the gallows and, uh, that he had prepared for Mordecai. And notice that very last phrase, the wrath of the king abated. In other words, now, um, all is right in the kingdom. Haman is finally dealt with. He's dead. And not only that, as we'll see in the coming chapters, the enemies of Christ have ultimately been dealt with. And now all of God's people are at rest, right? Right now, the presence of sin has been removed from God's people. And we rejoice. But there's only one problem. It's not for long. It's not for long. Because if you read the rest of scripture, you know that Israel has more enemies. That more people come. That more people threaten to destroy Israel. And the same is true for you and I. No matter how manicured our lives are, no matter how much we try and live in the right places or, or uh, have the right amount of money, or we live in the best possible places, we'll always be in the presence of sin. I read an article recently that a lot of people love living um, out in the country like us, right? Why? Because it's peaceful. We're we're away from the big city, the crime of the big city. But I have news for you. There's, there's a lot of sin in Flintstone. A lot. We'll never escape the presence of sin in this world. That's why Christians are encouraged to long for the world to come. You know, in Psalm 23, Asaph is frustrated at God, and he's getting weary at God. Because he looks out and he sees the wicked prospering and the righteous experiencing hardship. And Asaph said, when I went into the presence of the Lord, I realized one critical lesson. That a God eventually will make everything right. And here's why that's so important for you and I. There are times that we wake up and we feel like quitting. If we were honest. There are times when we get discouraged at the reality of the world that we live in. There are times when we wake up and we see that evil, or in our minds, we see that evil is winning. Or we look at our own lives and we say, God, what are you doing? Every time I turn around, there's something happening to me. And I, I don't understand it. Asaph felt the exact same way, and Asaph got bitter and angry at God. And his faith became tepid. He didn't want to go to the house of the Lord. He didn't want to worship the Lord. In fact, he got to a place where he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But Asaph remembered when he went into the house of the Lord, that the Lord one day will deliver him and everyone around him from the presence of sin. Beloved, I could think of no other joy to the world reality 
that one day you and I will be delivered from the presence of sin. That one day we'll be in heaven with the Lord. And we don't have to worry about the pain and suffering of this world. That's not pie in the sky. And anyway, uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, even if it's pie in the sky, it's true pie. It's true pie. I love that. I'm a pie man, you know, as you can tell. Um, That one day, one day, hear me today, that one day we will be delivered from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. That's the big takeaway. Big takeaway is the coming of Jesus signaled the ultimate victory over the power, penalty, and presence of sin. That it won't happen in this life, but it will happen in the life to come. And we wait like Asaph with eager expectation that our Lord will make things right. And that's why when we sing joy to the world, that's why when we come to church and sing the hymns of faith, This isn't meaningless. It matters because we know that one day this world will be rolled up like a scroll and a new world will be presented to us, free from all of those things. And we rejoice for that. So Christian, continue to persevere. Continue to love and show grace and believe in the doctrines of our most holy faith. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. Father, we thank you so much for passages like Esther 7 in the Bible, where we see you dealing with the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and ushering us one day into, away from the presence of sin. We thank you, Lord. And all of us in here today can truly rejoice at that knowledge. And help that to change us, us, oh Lord. Help that to help that reality make us people willing to repent, people willing to live righteously and holy in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.